Hello, I'm Sean Baker, Festival and Creative Director for Margaret River Readers and Writers Festival, and this is the Readers and Writers Podcast. In this episode, we're joined by B. Michael Radburn, who's the author of the Taylor Bridges series and Blackwater Moon. And our interviewer is our very own crime queen, Jen Bowden. Hello and welcome to the Readers and Writers Podcast. My name is Jen Bowden and I'll be your host for this episode. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We thank them for allowing us to live and work on this beautiful land and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Uh, I'm a journalist, editor and writer living in Perth, Western Australia. I currently teach publishing and journalism at Curtin University and I write long and short fiction. I lived and worked in Scotland for 10 years before moving out to Perth and finding out about this incredible, warm, lovely thing called the sun. I'm chatting with B. Michael Radburn, also known as Baz today, author of the riveting and spooky crime thriller, The Reach. B. Michael Radburn has published more than 100 short stories, articles and reviews in Australia and overseas. He lives in the rural Southern Highlands and the beautiful surroundings of his home inspire many of his stories. The Reach is the third novel in the Taylor Bridges series, following on from The Crossing and The Fall. He's been described as Ian Rankin meets Stephen King, which I would say is pretty accurate, having read a lot of Ian Rankin in my time living in Scotland. Uh, so welcome, Baz. Thanks for having me, Jen. It's, it's really great to be here. So apparently there's a great story as to why you chose to go with B. Michael Radburn for your pen name instead of uh, Baz. Uh, we'd love to hear it, if you don't mind. Uh, yeah, sure. It's a journey. Because um, I was christened Barry um, and from a young age always called Baz by my friends. But but when delving into the literary side of things, Baz and Barry just was never literary enough for me. Um, and even as a child, I used to stumble over the name myself. There were way too many R's. Barry Radburn, I used to... And in my mind, I just heard Elmer Fudd saying, hello, I'm Barry Radburn. Uh-huh. And it's, so I couldn't do that. So I stuck with my middle name, Michael Radburn, and, and just to appear all windswept and interesting, I stuck the B in front. I mean, it was simple as that. But for any budding author that's considering what their um, byline should be, have a good think about where you want to be on the um on the bookshelves because in crime by uh, uh, nature of my name myself, I, I'm, I'm stuck in there with uh, with um, Ian Rankin and uh, Kathy Rikes and so I'm in a good place. So um, if I'd thought more about it, I would have called myself Aaron Aardvark and be the very first one on the, <laughs> <It's interesting. laughs> on the shelf. I was just discussing this exact thing with my students the other day at Curtin and saying about how you you name as an author can impact where you are on the bookshelf. Um, I know a lot of authors who considered changing theirs to a married or a maiden name um, yeah. something like that to be able to to get themselves a bit better place. But you're in good company with Ian Rankin and Kathy Wright. Oh, definitely. I always get a bit uncomfortable with that, uh, being described as Ian Rankin meets Stephen King. <laughs> I love it, but um, I, I look forward to the day that another author is, is compared to B. Michael Redburn. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, that would be the pinnacle of uh, being an author, I guess. Um, mm. So your new book, The Reach, is um, the third in the Taylor Bridges series. Could you tell us a bit about what this one's about, maybe without too many spoilers? I know. You've read it, so this is a challenge. Um, very hard to tell too much about it without giving the, uh, the little twists away. So it's the third in the series, as you said, uh, set in the upper reaches of the Hawkesbury River, where... 
three bodies are discovered in the buried hulk of a, an 1800s riverboat, which proves to begin uh, a string of uh, serial killings in a town suddenly isolated by a, uh, a savage storm. So that's pretty much the crux of it. But uh, Taylor is really starting to develop now in the third book as a as a, uh, a driving character. It, it, I'm, I'm really enjoying working with him. <laughs> and and that leads really well into my next question, which is I found it really interesting that you have uh, a park ranger as a main protagonist. Um, why did you go with a park ranger and why not just a general detective who has a bit of a nature obsession? Yeah, yeah. Um... Look, I knew I wanted to set the series in the wilderness, so so it probably that led me to a park ranger. Um, but it, but I needed I needed a little bit more arc of character, so I'd share a little bit of the baggage, which seemed right. Uh, I wanted to avoid the cliches too, you know, the maverick cop, the cocky PI, the brooding ex cop. I, I read modern crime now, and that and those formulas are still being done today, you know. Um, I wanted him to be an, a relatable, accidental hero, I guess, the right man in the wrong place, uh, whose strength lies in more natural forensics. Uh, and that would lead to a nice balance then for if he's helping uh, a, a different policeman in a different situation in, in a different book. It's, it just gives me an opportunity to get that really nice balance, you know, or conflict or whatever needs to be uh, inserted into the story. And as well, it gives you the chance to explore more landscapes um, in terms of he'll he'll travel, he'll be requested by these different detectives rather than it just being all in the one locality. Yeah, that's right, because this this whole thing, I gave it quite a lot of thought in the, in developing the crossing of where I want it to go. And, um, and this gives it such a wide... Um, spectrum of of, uh, of characters and and locations in particular I can take him to any um, um, park within uh, the country uh, I'm even dabbling with him going offshore possibly to um, to France he's very big in France at the moment too so the the series so those opportunities are definitely there with the 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 broad spectrum of, of hidden places, which have really played a big part in all my most of my stories, to be honest. Well, maybe sometime in the future he'll come over to Western Australia. That would be... Uh, a oh, he <laughs> is. Oh, don't worry, yeah. I've got a nice little location there with an old whaling station that he might find himself in trouble in. Oh, that sounds perfect. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. So yeah. um, while we're on location and locality, uh, nature has a really big role to play in your books. In fact, it's it's pretty much a character itself for the most part. And the setting for The Reach is a rural town filled with people coming and going, but you still have that same core group um, of people who are permanent residents there. So why did you choose this setting in particular? And what did that add to the dynamic between the characters? Yeah, I guess I wanted in this one a history of conflicting natures, uh, both natural and personal, because the, the town exists due to logging, but it lays in the middle of a national park. So there's a, a conflict for you. Um, one part of it wants to grow trees, the other part wants to rip it down. The townsfolk are divided by the transient loggers and uh, the generational lo locals the cultural differences of colonial and indigenous history that's in the area there. It's those dynamics I wanted each character to, to navigate in this setting. And, and I think it's worked really well in that. So I'm really proud of the reach. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I certainly got such an overwhelming sense of the natural world being a really big part of this book, um, which was part of the reason that I found it so original, I think. Um, and there's an interesting relationship between man and nature in this book, as you've mentioned a little bit there. It's a constant shifting of power and control, and man often ends up on the losing side in this story. So you've got man-made structures like buildings, bridges, the ghost ships are all swallowed up by the earth, air and the water, and even fire at one point. And it's the same with human bodies, the corpses that are found in the reach are at the mercy of the elements. And those investigating kind of have to race against time before nature consumes um, all the things that would assist them in the investigation. So even when trying to land a helicopter, the wind and the storm overpower the machine. What was your thinking in depicting this constant power play? Was that part of the tension of the story? Yeah, I think you've probably summed it up uh, in the question, Jen. Weather has always played a role in this series. Um, humanity has attempted to control the elements and environments for centuries, as we know, and we're possibly paying the price for that now. Um, and that's an underlying tone, I think, uh, because of uh, Taylor's nature and, and his love of the wilderness. I wanted an extreme human circumstance, which we have, to meet an extreme weather event where my antagonist is, is, is shrewd enough to use it to an advantage even. Um, so it's both advantageous for one party and uh, not the case for the others. It's definitely weather always one of my characters. <laughs> yeah, And it's certainly an interesting one, like you said, with... Um climate change going the way that it is. Um, yeah. Does that influence how you um, plan these sorts of things out? I mean, would you have had such big storms if you, if climate change wasn't in play? I, I don't think so. Um, but psychologically, it's probably because it's such a you know, highlight at the moment for all of us, I think it, it does play a part of it. But um, I don't think I... I it was a part of the target for that story in as much as the necessity for the story to go where I wanted it to. So we've talked a little bit about the natural in the literal sense, um, in terms of the land, the water, the sky, and the way that that seems to be a superpower that wields control over the creatures that exist within it. I just want to segue into the word supernatural for a moment. Um, we've seen that in the literal sense in this book. The superior power of nature but there's also a lot of elements of ghosts the walking and talking dead people wearing talismans against unseen forces of evil so taylor's dead daughter claire speaks to her sister and the sister then warns her father at various points in the book about the case that's ongoing everett wears archie's watch as a kind of talisman a protection against evil that he has to endure as a detective and there are even instances of ghosts rising from the dead so do you think that the dead still communicate with the living and that rather than completely disappear, they live on in some elemental form? Mm. <laughs> You've given this story a lot more thought than I have. <laughs> the Reach is definitely the darkest yet of the series. Uh, I'm constantly exploring that question in my work and, frankly, it, it's in my DNA. I, I cut my teeth on speculative fiction uh, in my youth, through my teens, into my 20s, and I, and I still go there now with certain anthologies. I work uh, with uh, Jeff Brown's um, Snafu collection uh, anthologies, and so I still like to go there. Um, 
the dead may well communicate with the living, but in reality, I think it's through threads of our shared memories rather than anything supernatural. And I think supernatural is a good word to explain what we can't explain, uh, what makes us uneasy. And uh, I do like the concept and like to leave that what if in my stories, or and I always have. Um, in the speculative stuff that I still dabble in, it's a, it's a larger element, but... You know, crime and horror, I don't think it's a quantum leap from each other. It's just a, a maturing, I think, of, of what we're exploring, you know, with the human psyche and, and, and what these crimes leave us, you know. And have you had any sort of supernatural experiences yourself that or, or had a sense that someone who's maybe passed away that you've been close to has still been hanging around after the event? I think, again, it was an easy explanation for feeling uneasy in my youth. And, and, and let's face it, as teens, you, you go out of your way to try and scare yourself and go to places <laughs> that will scare you, you know. Um, I, I live in Picton, and, and it's I don't know how it's happened, but it's been named the most haunted uh, town in Australia, which is great. <laughs> they have ghost tours here and there's old train tunnels and all sorts of stories about a lot of the older buildings in the village, and that, and that's great. Um, but I, I've always been able to rationalise it in the clear light of day, but I've got to say my wife's been exploring our, um, our history and we were out way out west at, at, at an old hotel that belonged to one of my family way back in the 1800s and through into the early 90s. And we went inside there and I couldn't stay, Jen. I, I, there was just an... I couldn't explain it. My wife was happy tinkering around in there, but there, we weren't alone, Jen, <laughs> is all, that's how I feel, I can't, I can't explain it, but I had to leave, yeah, so I'm a sceptic by nature, but these, these feelings, you know, when they come upon you and you can't explain it, it is what it is, so I don't know. Yeah, absolutely, I mean, um, my parents had a similar experience when my granny passed away about two years ago, um, the next door neighbour rang and said that um, the house alarm was going off in granny's house, um, oh. so granny was safely at the funeral home, so they, they went down and um, and had a look to try and see what it was, and they thought it would be one of the zones, maybe a spider creeping across the sensor or something, but the one that was flashing was the tamper button that someone had tried to tamper with it. Oh. <laughs> and we think she was a bit mischievous, my granny, and we think that maybe she was um, she was just letting letting them know that she wasn't quite ready to leave the house yet. But um, it's funny because I'm a bit of a skeptic too, and I never thought that I'd believe in any of these things. But mm. there are strange things that happen. Usually around this month, it was two years ago this month that she passed, and we were quite close. And I bought a rose when she passed away, and it blooms every March without oh, fail. That that's beautiful. Every much. I mean, it's just from Bunnings. It's just a general rose, but of course, because it's, yeah. I've linked it to that for some reason, it, it blooms every month. And then the other day, she left me some books um, as my inheritance, this amazing collection of leather-bound hardback books. They're really, really beautiful. And uh, Charles Dickens's David Copperfield was poking out, and neither me or my partner could remember um, looking at that one, so... Wow, that was a bit spooky as well. Wow, Jen, don't be don't be surprised if any of that ends up in one of my future books. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the rose that blooms every year. Yeah, yeah. So I 
I understand what you're saying when you when you say you're a skeptic, but I do think there's this sense that like not necessarily that ghosts exist, but that there's something of people that lives on either in our memories or in our subconscious that then manifests. Yeah. I think that's the threads I'm talking about. There are certain threads, whether they be memories or things or places, that's where they talk to you and, 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 and leave that imprint, I think. But I think it's still a personal thing. I don't think what you feel may not be what the person next to you is feeling or seeing. So yeah. I think it's still on a personal thread. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I told my partner about the book, he sort of looked at me like I was a little bit um, balmy. But... No. <laughs> Um, so we'll just jump on to uh, female characters, back to the book. Um, yeah. And I want to talk to them, talk about them as a collective in an attempt not to give away any spoilers, which is really, really hard. <laughs> I've got so much to ask you that could just destroy it for everyone. Um, so the Reach is dominated by women. Um, they're good and they're bad, but that um, contrast is shown as not always being black and white. In fact, there's... The question of who is good and who is bad is really fluid in this book. The characters change from being portrayed as one or the other, which is a real testament to your writing that you made me feel sympathy for the antagonist. Um, why did you choose to portray your female characters this way, to have them so so diverse? Yeah, I don't think it's uncommon for my writing. I can't accept that people are all good or all bad, and I think that's the reality of it. We, it's easy to pick the formula in your books to really um, demonstrate who the good guy is and who the bad guy is. You know, the white hat, the black hat, the. But that that's not the reality, and that, that's not always easy to uh, relate to those characters. I think, but it's just a natural thing for me. Because humanity is vulnerable. We're all vulnerable. Good people can do bad things just as bad people can do good things. But it's it's their motivation that makes that character relatable. And I think that's what I'm trying to do. So it's the reasons. People do bad things for good reasons. Um, and I guess vice versa sort of thing. So uh, that's what I like to explore. I think that makes it relatable. And I think that makes the character's arc a little bit more interesting yeah absolutely um because if you just had someone who was just hell-bent on violence and had no real reason for for being as awful as they are it would be make for a very boring book it does doesn't it and and i think with your antagonists you really need to dig down and and know why they are who they are and why they do what they do it's it's not that simple you know it's and same with um you know, people like Taylor. Motivation is everything, you know. I, I, I write my books in layers and possibly just write the story down first sort of thing, but then on the second read go, well, why? Why did he or she do that? What's their motivation? And that allows me to dig down into the character a little bit or more so let their character surface. And when I do my synopsis, I always leave about, um, you know, 10 20%. Uh, for the for the story and the characters to grow while while the creative writing process is on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and while we're on women, um, I mentioned that women in this book seem to hold a lot of positions of power. And in, in a lot of instances, they control their own destinies, even though that hasn't been the case for all of their lives. Um, and this ability to change, to adapt, to work with nature rather than against it, to be able to control and define their physical and emotional selves 
it's really fascinating that you've given this active agency to your female characters rather than going for the typical crime trope of having them as purely passive. Um, it's men who are the target of violence and crime here and men who are the victims. So what was your thinking behind this? Was this deliberate? Yeah, definitely. You know, looking at the series, the, I think there's a progression of thinking towards the reach. The first book, The Crossing, was a very masculine, paternal story about a father's love for his missing daughter set down in Tasmania. Uh, on the heels of that, I, I felt there was a gap to be... Um, I felt there was a gap to be uh, 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 filled there. Um, on the heels of that, I wanted the falls, uh, which was set down in Victoria's uh, Lake District, to be more balanced with a stronger female detective that Taylor assisted on the wilderness case. But in the reach, I really wanted to turn the old pattern on its head completely with a broad ensemble of diverse female characters. Um, in this one, it was very important. Um, I even wanted to give, like, the, the even the environment uh, a feminine uh, touch and rage too, uh, and the abodes. Um, the, my history of writing, I mean, in the in the 90s, I, I found a nice little niche with uh, women's magazines all across the world, uh, particularly here with APC and, and Woman's Day, I, I was doing regular work for them, um, always with a twist in the tail, which is what I think the um, um, the editor liked most about my work, and and it was a good little owner for ten years or so. So, but that gave me ten years to explore the female uh, characters, the psyche, to dip down. So, for ten years, it was this big hairy biker. <laughs> leaning over a laptop writing <laughs> romance. But, you know, you'll, you'll still see romance and you'll see the speculative lie side of my work in, in all of my crime novels now, you know. I think I think it was a woman's day in particular was a really good testing ground for me to develop that. Yeah, and um, there's, there is a little bit of flirtation between Taylor and um, some of the female um, characters, you don't always get the sense that, not that he's going to be unfaithful to his wife, but that they are very, very conscious of their feminine power and what they can do with that. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 and look, I've got to say I'm very fortunate to have a, um, a female editor too and, and publisher and, and you know, they've, they've, ex, um, they've given me <laughs> plenty of tips along the way on, on where I've gone right and where I've gone wrong and that sort of thing. So, you know, um, no, no book is written alone uh, once you get a good team behind you sort of thing. And, and I think that's really added to its uh, success too and, and, and hitting the mark. It's great to have a team like that behind me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, on that publishing process, I'd like to look a little bit at your narrative style. And please don't be offended. Um, but I got a little <laughs> bit frustrated when I read the book. Um, because don't get me wrong, it's beautifully written. And I, I raced through it and really enjoyed it. But I did find that the the descriptive aspect of the narrative really slowed it down for me. It really slowed the pace and I was like desperate to get to the next bit of dialogue and I was thinking, why is he doing this? This is so frustrating. I want to know who done it. Um, but then, you know, I finished it and I took a step back and I thought, well, maybe, maybe that's deliberate and maybe it was to force me to stop and think about what was happening and to appreciate the beauty of that landscape that they're in, the, the nuances of the characters. Um, was this a case of trying to get the reader to read slowly and savour and understand? 
the words that you put on the page? Jen, I, I love the way you think. I think there's three kind of book out there. There's the one that you will read and and hate. There's the book that you love and move on to the next one. Then there's that book that you love or you a little bit, it, it, it keeps you wondering after the book. So you're still thinking about it. Yeah. And I'm glad that the reach is one of those books. I think there needs to be a cadence in the stories anyway. There needs to be a time for this is action-packed and there's a lot at stake here for a lot of different characters. Uh, and there's a lot of emotional uh, aspects to it, some dark, some, you know, you try and work on the, the, the darkness and the light in your stories. Um, see, I think to understand Taylor, the reader needs to understand his world, uh, just like the way you're going with your thinking. Uh, to understand a character, you must look at their abodes, I think, see how they live. That could be their house, their property, their state, you know. Um, uh, it, it's the old saying, show me, where, show me your house and I'll, I'll tell you who you are. So uh, I think these things, it, it's hard to explain. <laughs> I can write it, but I can't explain it, Jen. Um, <laughs> Uh, particularly if you look at the abodes of these characters. So someone like, uh, and I've got to think what I can say without giving things away, but but Sister Moore, uh, exiled in the abandoned uh, children's home, that, that speaks volumes, you know, because she uh, has been left there by the church. She's the keeper of its secrets. She's, she's also cursed with those secrets. Um, Jamie's empty ranger's cottage speaks volumes about Jamie, you know, let's face it, and the fact that there's nothing there to determine who she is. Um, and I better not say anything more. But, yeah, I, I think that's that's where I was going with all of those. Yeah, um, that makes an awful lot of sense as well. Um, so we're just going to segue slightly into the publishing process. You mentioned your editor. Um, you've obviously published a lot of writing, um, over 100 short stories and pieces of fiction and other articles. Um, does the process get easier the more you do it? or and, and do you feel like you don't have to work so hard to make a good book? Or is it still a bit nerve-wracking every time you go through that process? No, I've never found it nerve-wracking. Um, I think the day I think it's easy is the day I should hang up my quill, to be honest. Um, it's important to grow as a writer. Every new book should be built on the successes and failures of the last, I think. Um, that's the, the, you know, every success is built on a failure, let's face it. Um, same with your reading. You know, you'd be in the same. You're probably very critical of other people's uh, re uh, writings, whereas, you know, before you were a writer, you were... You just let them take you on the journey. Now you stop and you consider what works and what doesn't. Um, every book I, uh, I consider for its pros and cons because, you know, as writers we do stand upon the shoulders of giants, that's for sure. We have hundreds of years of history to draw back on. Um, I think that's that's what we do naturally anyway. Uh, so it, it's, it's, it's never been nerve-wracking. It doesn't, it doesn't get easier, but... You know, if you love if you love what you do, it's it's kind of easy anyway. I guess it's the, the you know the first relationship is between you and the story, and that's that's the best relationship before you hand it over to the publisher, where it becomes a commodity, and you know it's booked by um, a committee. Then so yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Um, and we mentioned at the start that um, this is your third book in the Taylor Bridges series. Um, and mm -hmm. I read somewhere that The Crossing is going to be turned into a film. So what's your take on books being adapted for film? And what are they going to have to do for you to feel like it's being done well with this one? Well, the first hurdle's been crossed because I wrote the screenplay for it. So, uh, <laughs> well, that's handy. That, yeah, that that's made it a lot uh, easier. Um, book to film is 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 tough work, Jen. And this was my first screenplay, so I was very fortunate to have the um, director James Keddy help me with it. I knew, you know, look, four hundred pages does not convert easily to 90 minutes. So uh, every page of a script is one minute of uh, screen time. So unless you're Tarantino, a 400-minute film <laughs> isn't going to cut it sort of thing. So, yeah, you have to learn to um, consolidate characters sometimes. You have to ask the big question of what's relevant and what's not. Um, pace is important. Um uh, characters, how you build them. I mean, you can't you can't spend two pages describing something that is very critical for for that particular scene. It has to come from the characters. It's um, it's all about the dialogue in in a, in a certain certain aspect. So um, I love the process. There's no doubt about that. And look, I, I'm very confident with James too. He, he's a BAFTA award-winning director, um, and his last film, um, The Telegram Man, you know, I, I just loved. And so I'm very comfortable. I sleep sleep very well at night, knowing it's in good hands. I just can't wait to see it. Yeah, it sounds like it's going to be really, really good. Um... So we talked a little bit about your writing career um, and about how you, you wrote romance previously. What drew you to crime? I've always, I'm always going to write on the darker side of, of literature. I think that was stamped into my DNA early in the piece. But I, I just let the journey take me to where I am today. There was, there was no planning to be where I am today. I, I, I did like the, the process and just let it take me to where I am. Um, you know, speculative fiction was a good place to start and I think it's only natural in your teens that you, you are asking those questions and the what-ifs, um, you know, exploring those things. Romance, uh, like I said, it, it's the twist in the tail is what drew the editors to me. Um, they, they always gave me the Halloween uh, issue for, for starters and, <laughs> and I also learnt in that, uh, it became evident that they could throw anything at me. So themed things I was getting a lot, whether it be the Melbourne Cup or Christmas or Anzac Day, anything like that, I've, I, I could sit down and go, bang, there it is, you know, 1,500 words, thanks for coming. Uh, but it was a great, it was a great uh, exercise in that question of what's relevant because that's all you get. You get 1,500 words and not a not a word less not a word more because it had to fit in this slot in the magazine and and in amongst the uh, advertisements and all that so it was a great it was a great learning experience for me particularly in discipline in writing um and having having danced on the, that darker side of literature it was only natural i think as i uh, developed as a writer, as I matured as a writer to go to prime. And, and you can see now that the mix in, in, in something like The Reach, that all of those have come into it. You know, there is a, 
a touch of flirtation and romance and and I really do like to work with female characters and um, and and the, the the crime all crimes are dark there's no funny crimes you know it's um and there's the, the challenge there is getting that darkness and light in, in your novels and yeah so that, that's pretty much the pathway I took and what took me where I am and I'm I don't know I wouldn't change change a, a day but I, I've loved it I think it's interesting that you raised the point about um, word limits in terms of being subject to a space in a magazine because obviously things are very different nowadays in terms of magazine writing. So even when when I was working on magazines um, just after I graduated, there was still that expectation that the print would endure and now it's very much more digital. Um, mm. How have you navigated that change? Do you, do you still write for digital? Do you write for magazines? Do you write for digital um, outlets or no, not so much magazines. I, I, I've just the, all my time now is with the novels and the anthologies. Um, the with the anthologies, most of the ones I go with, it's a limit of three thousand to five thousand words, and that's that. That's that's the first part when you think about okay, what am I going to do? What's the theme? What am I going to do? The first thing in the back of my mind is the word count. So. Yeah, can I develop characters, or does it have to be action-driven? You know, or you know, have I got the space for that? Um, so, yeah, I've sort of dipped out of that that side of it a little bit now. It's it's um, I've got a, a, a wider scope to work with. And it's a it's a good move in um, to my next question. If you could offer one bit of advice to aspiring authors, what would it be? Hmm. Or writers of any kind, really, doesn't necessarily have to be novels. Yeah, there's a lot of advice out there that you'll get from different authors. Every every pathway is different, and that, and we all write differently, you know, in our approach and mind space for it. But I remind everyone that uh, publishing is fickle. There's there's some really bad books on the shelf, and there's some really wonderful books in authors' drawers that will never see the light of day. That's the reality of it. So the journey can be a really emotional one, depending on your your end goals, I think. But but in saying that, never lose sight of why you write for any artist, or why you paint, or why you write poetry, or why you play music. That would be my advice. Whether you're amateur, semi-professional, or professional, just don't lose sight of that love. And that's why I said earlier that um, that first relationship with the book or the story, where it's just you and the story is lovely. That's why we do it. Um, What happens to it after that can be a rocky journey, can be a wonderful journey, can be anything. Um, So just never, whatever your end goal, never lose sight of the love affair you have with with that medium. That's really, really good advice. Um, well, thank you, Baz, for joining us today. It's been wonderful to talk to you and gain all that insight into your book. Uh, Janet, it's been a pleasure. I've really been looking forward to it. Thank you so much for the opportunity. So that's all we have time for today. Please download, like, share, send us your thoughts. We'd love to hear from you. Bye for now.